Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing today? You guys were so much better than the first service. They were all gloomy, and you guys, you guys are awake. I love it. In the first service, I had this crisis moment where I realized I'd left my Bible in my office, and Andrea was doing the announcements, and I was trying to feel, can I get to the office and back? Um, it was giving me some anxiety, as we'll talk about today. Um, and so I read from an iPad. So if you like technology, you should have come to the first service. If you uh, have some Luddite tendencies and you're about the paper version, well, this is the service for you. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before me, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day. For darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I made, was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. God, as we take this word and we process it, would you please speak to us? God, thank you for the truths that are in there. Would you open our hearts to believe them in a different way? Amen. So, again, if you're jumping in with us and you're fairly new, we're in this series, the last week of this series, called Overwhelmed. It's a series on anxiety. We have started a new thing where if you'd like to text and ask some questions, then feel free to text and ask some questions on this number. You can write it down, and when Aaron and I do our midweek podcast, uh, we'll answer some of those questions, and we'll get some fun dialogue going there. So just jot it down, and anything you think is wrong, anything you think is interesting, let's pull some threads together we'd love to have your participation. This series around anxiety, it's been interesting because I don't feel like we've necessarily done a lot to define anxiety. And yet anxiety isn't just an academic thing, it's, it's a felt thing, it's an emotional thing. And so this week, uh, as I was just Going about my week, I had this moment of glee because I realized I've been handed just a delightful illustration about anxiety. How many of you guys watched the Cowboys-Buccaneers game last week? Anyone out there? Maybe a couple. There was this moment where um, 
the kicker for the Cowboys, Brett Mayer, you see in front of you, was asked to come on and kick an extra point after a touchdown. And this is like the most rudimentary thing that a kicker does. He wanders on and he kicks his extra point. He wanders off. Everyone celebrates him. He never gets hit. And he makes, you know, a million dollars, two million dollars a year or, or whatever. And Brett Mayer came on to kick uh, an extra point and he missed. And then he came on a second time to kick another extra point and he missed. And then a third time and he missed. And a fourth time, and he missed. So at the end of this game, not only has Brett Mayer missed more extra points in a game than any other kicker in history, he's missed more extra points in this game than any kicker has missed in their career in history. This is just a, a, a hugely questionable performance. And there's this moment around the fourth time that he tries where, where he's kind of got this expression on his face that's like, don't make me go back out there. Like, it's just, it's, it's, it's anxiety. It's this look. You can see it in the guy's face. It's written there. And, and as we're watching, I'm like, I feel for this guy. My wife is crumbling. She's, she's, I can't watch this. She's got her head buried in her hands. The moment is just too awkward for her to watch. But I have this look of glee on my face because I'm like, I feel a sermon illustration coming on. This is just like a moment of provision. Just... Just joy for me. The guy's suffering is, is, is nothing to, to that. So, so Brett, he was on my fantasy football team this year. He saved my season. I thank you. And your smiling face there uh, means a lot, but your anxiety-ridden face uh, has given us some rich stuff to work with this morning. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, uh, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Throughout this series, we've picked up on this word that Jesus uses, another writer, Paul, uses. This word for anxiety in the Greek language is merimneo. Yes, it means do not be anxious, but it also has some other elements to it as well. Don't be divided into parts or don't be distracted by the wrong things. Life has a way of pulling us in all sorts of different directions. And the way we've broken that up through the series is we looked at past anxiety. We looked at future anxiety. Where, where is the next thing? Where's the future going? And, and today we'll kind of land a little bit in the present. Last week in the future, we, we read this C.S. Lewis quote that unpacks some of where we're supposed to spend our time. The future is of all things the thing least like eternity. It's the most temporal part of time, for the past is frozen and no longer flows, and the present is all lit up with eternal rays. There's this idea that when you start thinking about the future, it gets very vague, very quickly. It has no concreteness to it. The past has some concreteness to it, and the present seems to be the moment that God lives in constantly. It's a constant ever-present now. And so when we're in this moment, that, that's the most we'll experience of eternity until one day we walk into it. We, when we think about the future, might be able to recognize this. Most of our catastrophes exist in the future and only in the future. We get over-concerned about them. In fact, Penn State, the university, wanted to prove this, so they did a piece of research. They gathered a group of people, and they asked them to track their worries for the next 
10 days. They would write them down, they would send them in, and then after 30 days, they would go back and look and see how many of them came true. They would rule out anything that couldn't be tested. So if someone was worried I might get cancer at some point, that was off the table. But if someone was worried about passing a test the next day, that was testable. After the 30 days, what they discovered was this. 91% of worries were false alarms. 91% of worries were false alarms. And of the remaining 9% of worries that did come true, the outcome was better than expected about a third of the time. And for about one in four participants, exactly zero of their worries transpired. They didn't happen. So, so we wrestle with that tension, right? We, we admit that some of the things we're worried about, they, they just won't happen. Sometimes they'll happen and not as bad as we think. And then the great truth we learned from last week was this. When they do happen, God is present with us in the midst of them. We're invited as followers of Jesus not to overextend into the future, uh, not to get lost in the past, but to live in this present moment now. It's why Jesus says, every day has enough trouble of its own. Every day has enough trouble of its own. So, now we've dealt with the past, and now we've dealt with the present, everything's good, right? There's no need to be anxious anymore, except this present moment. Doesn't it have plenty of anxieties, potentially at least, uh, of its own? Perhaps there's a concern about a job. Perhaps there's concern about a relationship. There's a concern about where will my kids go to school. There's a concern about all sorts of things that we might look at in the future. And those kind of break into two different categories. On one hand, there's the things that are real, that we actually should be at least aware of, even if we can trust God with the outcome of them. There's, there's the concrete things. There's moments that we might feel like the whole world is falling apart right in front of us, and we are left in the midst of that. And, and I try to resist showing you cat videos from YouTube fairly well, I don't show them often, but, but they are a passion of mine. And I came across this one that just displayed anxiety in the present moment really, really well. Uh, and so if you missed this, here's a treat for you. If you've never seen a cat show anxiety, you're about to see it now. The scene I'll set for you is this. It's a Zoom courtroom, and, and something happens here. Mr. Ponton, I believe you have a filter turned on in the video settings. Uh, you might want to uh, uh, take, take We're a trying look. to, we're tr can you hear me, Judge? I can hear you. I think it's a filter. It, in the it is, and I don't know how to remove it. I've got my assistant here. She's trying to, but uh, I'm prepared to go forward with it. That's, I'm here live. That's not, I'm not a cat. I can I can see that. Um, I think if you click the up arrow next. So I came across this video and I'm sat with my kids watching it. And they're like, is there something wrong with you? I've got tears pouring down my face because every time the cat looks down, there's just this distinctly anxious look in its face. And then there's the moment where the, the guy feels the need to qualify. Oh, no, I'm not actually a cat. It's <laughs> That's exactly what a talking cat would say if it tried to take the place of a human lawyer. I'm, I'm not a cat, I promise. I'm like, ah, uh, you are a cat. So, so there's, there's those moments, right, where we're crumbling, 
where something's gone wrong, where we're in, in the face of embarrassment or in the face of things not turning out as they expected, those things that are real and, and they have elements of present anxiety. And then there's other moments, moments that I've experienced where if I'm honest, I would say it may not be real. It, it may be that it's imagined. The situation may not be what I have thought it to be. Here we're talking in the realms of how we see ourselves. This is my thesis overall today. It goes like this. The me I see leads to anxiety. The me I see leads to anxiety. How I value myself, how I hold myself worth, that can lead to anxiety. And let's dig into it in this passage. Back in the passage we looked at last week, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus asks two questions in this passage. Both of these questions, I would suggest, are really easy to give a mental yes to, and probably a chunk harder to, to live out as a yes. Here they are. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? To which I would say, yes. But as we looked at last week, it's very easy to live as though those are the most important things. We, we are either trapped in the necessity of we need food, we need clothes, or we are desperately trying to accumulate, accumulate more luxuries, more stuff. And so I would say it seems like yes, but it can feel like no. And then look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? To which I would say yes, but I don't always feel it. Maybe I can get on board with more valuable than the birds, but in terms of am I valuable to God? Does God see value in me? Does he love and like me? It's really easy to say a definite, concrete yes to that intellectually, but, but sometimes I wonder whether I actually have processed that and feel it and can actually hold it to be true. How I see me, it actually seems like it matters. Seems like it matters. And then we think about all the different ways that we interact with people and they seem to see themselves in a particular way. Well, it seems like human beings manage to go one of two different directions. We meet people all the time that seem to think an awful lot of themselves. There's the famous Narcissus from Greek mythology who fell in love with his own reflection and drowned in the water. And, and if you're part of the evangelical church, you've maybe got this sense that Somewhere we've, we've allowed narcissism to run a little bit rampant in these communities. We either attract narcissists or we seem to develop narcissists. And so there's a whole interesting thing going on here. But here's some quotes from some famous people in the past. David Bowie, I'm an instant star, just add water and stir. I'm an instant star. Frank Sinatra, I am a thing of beauty. I am a thing of beauty. Oscar Wilde, I am so clever that sometimes I don't understand a single word of what I'm saying. <laughs> These are people that reflect one extreme of their know I have a really high opinion of myself. 
And then there's maybe the middle ground of, uh, if you say it fluctuates, maybe even from day to day. I love this anonymous one. Some days I amaze myself, other days I put my keys in the fridge. There's like, there's good and there's bad. And then there's the, the more negative ones. Even when they're humorous, the very great, wonderful Groucho Marx once said this, I refuse to join any club that would have me as a member. It's like the, a value statement on the club and, and the person. Maybe you felt that way about a church. <laughs> I'm not sure that if they want me, it's the place to be. This is Taylor Swift in a recent song. It's me, hi, I'm the problem. It's me. At tea time, everybody agrees. I'll stare directly at the sun but never in the mirror. It must be exhausting, always rooting for the anti-hero. These are views of self, of how you see yourself that, that are more negative. And then the last one is, is the most poignant for me because it's personal. It's this one. I'm such an idiot. Alex Walton. And, and there's some humor to that, and yet... Here's the thing, in different settings, in different moments, when I failed again at something that I should have learned better about by now, when I reflect back on past moments, when I think about things I should have done and didn't do, what catches me off guard time and time again is the vehemence that I can say things like that over myself. And perhaps you have something too. It may not be this word, but maybe it's something else. Maybe it's, I'm such a loser, I'm, I'm ugly, I'm, I'm, no one likes me. There's so, I could go on and on with the list and I won't because it's personal to you, but there's, there's maybe something that you've said about yourself, nobody will ever love me, I have no value. There's the statements that can catch us off guard, that reveal something in ourselves, something deep down inside. We are people, we wrestle with our identity. There's the famous book, The Ugly Duckling, that maybe you've read and thought of as a children's story. It is a children's story, but one that's deeply profound. The, the Ugly Duckling has that same wrestling. He doesn't know who he is, and so his value on himself has completely diminished. And Hans Christian Andersen, the author that wrote it, was told, you should write an autobiography, and he said, I did. It's The Ugly Duckling. That's me, that's who I am. That, I was the one that had no value on myself. How I see me actually matters. And it matters not just because it's internal and how I'm processing it, but because of this next statement. How I see me affects the me you'll see. How I see me affects the me that you'll see. How I show up in a room, how I interact, how I come to this place, to any place, well, it's affected by that deeply personal sense of value that's there. The, the writer Will Meek says this, the problem for most people is that they struggle to accurately read the amount of acceptance and rejection in their lives, leading people to have low self-esteem when they actually are very intelligent and loved. We get trapped in, in what you might call a vicious circle that seems to go round and round and round as we wrestle with our own identity and have to either prove to others that we're more than we seem or struggle to find any acceptance from them. It, it includes some of these elements. It starts with I'm not good enough for, or any place in the circle. We compare ourselves to others and we start to say we don't belong, so we compensate with stuff, with feelings. We become judgmental of anyone that doesn't fit or doesn't seem like us, then we feel lonely and isolated and not part of the gang and so we're not good enough and we go round and round again and the circle spins faster and faster and faster and our sense of self-worth and our sense of how others see us, they all get caught up in that. 
doesn't social media feel like it pours fuel on that picture? I found something I posted a couple of years ago, actually about four years ago now, and it, it was brought back to memory by this circle. It's this picture. It's me and my two oldest kids were driving cross-country, were moving from Michigan to New York. And on the picture, it's like, oh, life is well, we're off on this grand adventure. Together, I can remember there were a bunch of other pictures. It was probably the most in a season that I posted anything on social media, and, and everything was checkpoint. We're moving through a new state. We're, we're about to arrive. And, and yet, when I reflect back, this time was probably one of the deeply, most deeply traumatic times of our life. We moved out to a different church. We left a community that we loved. And, and at this point, we already knew there were elements to it that were, were going to be difficult, if not bad. Some of the worries were already coming true and were as bad as we expected them to be. And yet what I needed, it felt, seems like, to show everyone was, no, life is well. This is a good move. Everything's going to be great. You can see what happens with that cycle, right? When someone posts something like that and somebody else feels, well, well, I need to compare to that. And, and then their fake great becomes the thing for you to post your next fake great. And it just moves and moves and moves circle after circle after circle. And, and it's no wonder that this became an axiom 200 years ago and, and could be for today. It's a French axiom. Pretend to think well of yourself and the world will think well of you. Just fake it and everyone will get on board with you. It seems like how I see me is deeply, it affects deeply the me that you see. And it's all linked to this idea of self-esteem, of self-worth. And so I went rooting around in different biblical writers to see what could I say about self-esteem, and here's the problem. It's just not in there. The biblical writers don't have any sense of self-esteem. It's not part of their language, not at all. You might say this, the biblical writers as a whole recognize no possibility of self-esteem outside of healthy relationship with our creator. The story of scripture is one of true identity lost and then recovered through God's entry into his world. So when I go through this moment where I'm like, I just need to think better of myself, that has never worked. It's not a strategy that's ever worked. It just ends up in a cycle of trying to think better of yourself, trying to believe others think better of you. It never seems to get you anywhere. Certainly not to the lasting peace that we've talked about regularly. There's this sense that that is outside of the biblical conversation. Self-esteem might be a modern idea that the only framework it seems to understand is God-esteem, how God values us as human Beings. The, the good news there is this, in amongst this biblical narrative, all of these writers that give this faithful witness to this grand story, there's so many occasions of people who have no sense of self-worth, who have all of this baggage, who in a moment seem to find that sense of God-worth out of almost nowhere, whether that's Abraham who thinks he's too old, or Jeremiah who thinks he's too young, whether it's Moses who thinks he's not smart enough. There's all these different stories of people who seem to come with this big sense of lack of, I'm nothing, I have no value. And they seem to find it. These writers, they talk in these two different ways about time. There's, there's this idea, chronos, it's chronological time. It just runs linear, it's the everyday moments. 
And maybe those are the moments we feel like this sense of I'm trapped and it's this constant question, questioning of value. And, and then there's this moment, kairos, which means a significant time, a season, something is about to happen. Something is about to change. And, and that's what happens for every single one of these writers because how I see me affects the me you'll see, but the me God sees is the real me. That, that's this overriding argument within the biblical writers' works that they say that, that we can't really know ourselves even, that, that actually even when I think I've got a handle on myself, there's something better at the core, there's something more at the core. I, even I don't see the real me, only it seems God sees the real me. So when we think back about Jesus' question of value, that, that is at the core of that. It's not a self-esteem issue. Do I value myself enough? It's have I got any sense of how the God of the universe sees me. And so for a moment, I want to give you some language for this and then a story to tap into. When we think back to Psalm 139, that, that passage I read at the beginning, it begins with an acknowledgement of God's knowing and just feel some of the emotion in these words for a second. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. It begins with an acknowledgement of knowing, and then it's a knowing of my inner life. You discern my going out, my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind, and before you lay your hand upon me, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. It's a knowing of my actions and place. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. And then there's this knowing of my physical being too. You created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body, and you might read in Hebrew this unformed body as being like the idea that God knows you before birth, and it could mean that, but the Hebrew word is actually golem which is where Tolkien got this idea of Gollum from. You know my broken side, you know my messiness, you know my ugliness. This psalm is a psalm of knowing. It's a psalm that isn't dependent on behavior. It's a psalm that is simply located in this is who you are and this is how you are valued. And it finishes with this idea, how precious are your thoughts about me, God? How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. And every time I read this, I'm invited into this thought process. I'm reminded of every beach that I've ever taken a stroll along and the number of grains of sand that are on that beach. I'm reminded of every sand trap that I've got stuck in for three or four shots. And, and I'm reminded of the number of sand in that sand trap of every kid's play sand pit that I've come across, there's, there's an infinity of thought there, and that language is this 
is the way you, child, are thought about. If I were to count these thoughts, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when, I'm, when I awake, I am still with you. In every single way that we long to be known, this psalm encompasses it. It's got these elements of my inner life, all the things going on inside me, the things that I've done, and even my own physicality with all the questions that I have about it. Do I like my body? Do I like the thing that it's becoming as it ages and it starts to slowly fall apart? There's a few shakings of head. It's, it's fine. It's, it's, but, it, but it's loved, right? It's like, no, no, you are valued in your entirety. In our struggle, I would suggest, for how I see me and how it affects the me you see, is this conflict between our desire to be known and our fear of being known. What would happen if people could see me? There's this desire for, for those that first and, and this fear of the same. And what happens in this psalm is, is we're invited into this picture of a God who both sees completely and still loves completely. It's a value question that is locked in there. Those are words, and we'll get back to those words in a minute, but this is beautifully encapsulated in this story of one of the Bible's beautiful invisible characters. It's this story of this guy called Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth has been the grandson of a king, but now somebody else is king. And so watch this interaction with him and the new king. The new king is David, who wrote the psalm we just read. David asks a question that on the surface is a bit of a menacing question with a whole bunch of implications. Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul? Traditionally, across almost all of history, if you became king and there were still family members of the old king, the first order of business was to get rid physically of all of those other members of the royal family from the family before yours. So, so a best case scenario, that was exile or being locked in a tower. Worst case scenario is a little more sinister. This is a portrait of the twins in the tower, two kids that were locked in the Tower of London during the reign of Richard II. He was very worried that these kings, these princes would grow up, people would coalesce around them, so the princes disappeared and nobody ever knows concretely what happened to them. This is what human beings do when they want to hold on to power. This is the question. It seems like David is asking, is there anybody left of Saul's house so I can make sure I get rid of those people left in Saul's house? I don't want any threats to my power, but, but his question takes a somewhat dramatic turn. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Jonathan had been David's closest friend and now he wants to find out, is, is there anyone that's connected to Jonathan that I can do something Four, and there was a servant of Saul's household, it turns out, named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Now it's not just kindness, now it's God's kindness. It's this extra level of kindness, of generosity. And, and Ziba responds this way, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. It's fascinating that he adds that because it could mean one of two things. It, it could mean that he doesn't trust David because if someone was lame in two feet, well, they were considered worthless in this society. So the language there is, we don't need to bother with this guy. He's no threat 
to you, I know what you're really up to, just, just let the guy go. If not, if he does trust David, it's a, a reminder of, well, he's lame. He's not going to be any value to you. You're not going to be able to use him for anything. Either way, it's a dismissal. It's a, a valuelessness in the statement. But David doesn't let it go, even when he knows Mephibosheth has no value in that society in that day. Where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Makir, son of Emil, in Lodabar. Lodabar is the name of a town, literally translated in Hebrew, Dabar means thing, and Lo means no. It's a town of nowhere, it's a town of nothing, it's Manawi, Nebraska. It's this town, it's not a Nebraska slight, I know some of you are from Nebraska, there's nothing wrong with Nebraska that mountains and better weather couldn't fix, but it's, it's, it's this town that's, that's nowhere. Manawi has one resident, um, and it has these two buildings. Uh, this one resident that has lived there by herself since her husband died, her name is Elsie, and this is her running her restaurant, which is her main job. She's also the mayor of Manawi, Nebraska. She's also the secretary of Manawi, uh, Nebraska. She pays taxes to herself and is the government representative that takes in the taxes. She applies for liquor licenses and approves liquor licenses. She has a broad permit to improve life in Manoe, Nebraska, to the degree that it can be uh, approved. This is, this is Lodabar. This is, this is what we're talking about. You may have well have said she lives in Elsie. He lives in Elsie's house in Manoe, Nebraska. It's a place where nothing will ever happen, where there are only dead ends, where everything is almost on pause. When it says that Mephibosheth lives in Lodibar, that's the language that it's trying to give us. Mephibosheth lives in a place of no value because he has no value. He lives in a place where nobody wants to be except if they have to be there. Ziba answered, he's, he's in the house of Makir, son of Emil in Lodibar. So King David had him brought from Lodibar, from the house of Makir, son of Emil. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. It's code language for, please don't kill me. I know what you have invited me here for. And David says, Mephibosheth, there's always this idea within scripture of there's a power in a name of speaking someone's name. It's an acknowledgement of their personhood. At your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. And this is Mephibosheth's response, which when you think about my such an idiot comment, when you think about some of the things you might have spoken over yourself or felt about yourself, this is a good reflection. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? I have no value. I should not be noticed. There is no reason for me to be here other than death. This is a value statement. And David's reply is this, then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything 
that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him, bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. It's this progression from the lowest seat in the land to the second highest seat in the land. It is this movement that is a picture of grace before grace existed. It's simply an invite in and, and it's, an, uh, appropriate, it's an adding of value when there was no value before. This is who we are. Are you not much more valuable than they is Jesus' question. And it's a question that I am inclined to feel no. And it's a moment where I'm invited to ask this other question. What is more indicative of my value? Is it what I say about myself? Is it what other people say about me? Or is it what God says about me? Where does the value come from? Are you not much more valuable than they? The question I would invite us to ponder is this. How will you and I decide your value? How will you decide your value? There are things that have been spoken over you that have never been true, and yet they can be felt so deeply. There are questions that we have about who we are, and yet the value that we are ascribed is, is that one. In our moments of how can you look on such a dead dog as me, in our moments of I am such an idiot, no, 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 the, the value doesn't come from that. In the moments of reflecting back on past failure, in the moments of worrying about future success, the value doesn't come from that. In the moments of questioning, will I have enough food? Will I be able to get all of the food I want? Will I have enough clothes? Will I be able to get the right clothes? The, the value doesn't come from that. We are, as a species, are people wrestling with our identity and wrestling with our value. And there is no language within Scripture that says just work on your self-esteem. It's not to say that you can't work on that with a counselor somewhere outside, but within the church language, there is no language self-esteem. There is only language for the value God gives. How will you decide your value? And so I'm going to invite Aaron to come and he's going to sing a song over us, a song about Mephibosheth. And in a moment I'm going to invite you to stand and there's going to be about nine or ten people that will be here out the front and they have something about value, some words from Psalm 139 that they would love to read over you. Because things have been said to you, and things have been felt by you, and they're not true. And these words are true. And so I'm going to invite, would you all stand with me? And I'm going to be coming to one of these people because these are words I would love to hear spoken over me. And so if you choose to come, and you're free not to come, but you're very welcome to come. I'm going to invite you to come and just share your name with the person. And they're going to read the words and give you a card to take away. God, for those of us that need a new story, for those who have a thing that comes to mind and is felt, it perhaps gives a visceral reaction. Maybe when we think about it, our heart rate starts to jump up a notch. For those of us that need a new story, would you help us to receive your words? We are fearfully and wonderfully made. 
you think about us more than the sand in the beaches, sand traps, sand pits. You know our coming out and our going home. Were we to disappear to the far side of the world there, you would be present. You would know us. God, we're invited to bring all of our shame, all of our wrestling and insecurities. When we hear new words speak or spoken over us, God, would you create a moment, a Kairos moment that is transformative. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.